you know, it's a $2 trillion inventory gap globally in, in local stores across the world where customers go who need a product, want a product, and it's just not available. And it's not available because nobody along that whole chain, that distribution chain, the manufacturer, the distributor, the merchant has any access to quality data. And they have no access to quality data because all the kind of moving parts are just so fundamentally broken. You know, it's just it's just a crazy world, right? And it, it badly needs an overhaul in terms of digital infrastructure to be able to support that. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. And today I'm talking with and learning from Justin Floyd. Justin's currently the CEO at Red Cloud. Red Cloud are looking to solve a trillion dollar problem. They are looking to solve a problem for B2B merchants and consumers outside the Western world. So we talk a little bit about a pilot that they've run in Argentina. And really, it's putting e-commerce or putting a digital platform, a digital distribution platform and trading platform and finance platform in the hands of physical stores in Southeast Asia, um, South America, and Africa. Fascinating conversation about his product and the problem they're trying to solve. And actually, we pull out some parallels in that you know, are still challenging in the UK. I was talking to CEO of a a plumbing manufacturing business and the challenges seem very similar. But Justin's got a fantastic track record, 25 years of building technology startups. He spent some time in Silicon Valley, spent some time in Cambridge. He's run companies, he's built companies, he's sold companies, he's invested in companies. And so we have a talk today about the challenges that he sees that are consistent over time and how he has set out to solve them and some fantastic book recommendations at the end as always an absolute pleasure talking to justin i really enjoyed it i'm sure you will too i'm justin floyd i'm a serial entrepreneur technology entrepreneur over the last three decades and i've been involved with some really interesting businesses over that over that period of time a lot of experience across Spent, spent almost a decade on and off out in Silicon Valley and uh, built tech companies right across the world. Businesses I've been involved in, they've raised over, collectively, they've raised over, I think, about $1.2 billion in capital to help them grow. And I've also sat on both sides of the equation, actually. I've sat 
in the garage and I've built a company from scratch and I've also sat on the other side of the table where I've been an investor in company. So I've seen kind of both sides of it. What did you build in the garage? Uh, my very first company, is, uh, which was uh, which was my BI company, a business intelligence company. We built it in a garage in Birmingham. It didn't even have a garage door on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we started coding in September. <laughs> and in, invariably, the product took longer than we thought it would. So we'd sit there in the freezing bloody cold with, you know, our kind of jumpers and overcoats on and so on and so forth, tie a whiteboard in the corner, figuring out how we were going to change the world of manufacturing distribution with our business intelligence software. And we were going to kill Cognos and we were going to kill SAP. We were going to kill Hyperion and all the kind of big tech companies that had done a really crappy job of serving all the world's small businesses with critical business intelligence information they needed to be to help grow their businesses more successfully. And actually, interestingly, every, every business I've been involved in is always kind of fights for the little guy. I'm just struck by your delusional optimism. (laughs) (laughs) Three decades of delusional optimism and still and still coming out swinging. Did you what did you do with that? What happened to that BI business? Well, uh, in the end, we exited it to a private equity company and then they they sold it to a listed company. Actually, I'm quite proud of it, you know, because it's still around now. Almost 30 years on, it's still around. And still serving SMEs? Yeah, mainly small manufacturers and distributors, particularly companies with kind of high volume, low margin products, which still dominates most of the world's consumer sales. Uh, Those businesses have a real problem when it comes to understanding kind of buying patterns and gaps and what products they should be selling and not selling. I mean, interestingly, we almost kind of created an early, a sort of early Amazon style, you know, if your customer likes this, they should be buying that. And we, we created that kind of relationship that existed between multiple different kind of product threads and made those products come together and and were obvious kind of uh, sell-by-side style items. And when you're operating at scale, so let's say if you're an office products company or you're a car parts distribution company or, you know, you're a company that's distributing kind of millions of different kind of food products, you know, that becomes, that, that becomes really critical to you actually and it can make a huge difference to your your revenue, your bottom line in terms of your ability to be able to kind of group products together and be able to successfully sell those products together to customers. Is there a thread there between that and Red Cloud, which is your current endeavor? Because as you're talking, I'm thinking, hang on, I've just been on your website. It looks like you're still trying to solve that problem. I am, yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, actually, I, that problem just grew, really. I, I mean, you know, the world's got a distribution problem, right? Whether, you know, on kind of one extreme, you can talk about it's got a wealth distribution problem. In the world that I operate in, it's got a product distribution problem. I, I mean, last year, there was over, it's almost, I think it's just under $2 trillion worth of products weren't available in store for customers who wanted to buy them. And they're not available in store because there is such little uh, ability to be able to successfully distribute a scale. And actually, it's interesting we started this conversation on talking about Amazon today. I mean, when you look at Amazon, uh, I mean, you know, people kind of talk about them as an e-commerce company or an online retailer or whatever. But you know what they are? They are a fantastic distribution business. They've got that absolutely nailed. They know end-to-end how to buy, sell, distribute products, do that super efficiently, across you know multiple different markets the different all kinds of different sizes of customers different sizes of sellers they don't treat people necessarily particularly their sellers in a very good way along that journey but they are absolutely totally brilliant at actually getting the right product to the right customer at the right time and so what what's the gap then what gap are you trying to fill with with red cloud today 
you know, it's a $2 trillion inventory gap globally in, in local stores across the world where customers go who need a product, want a product, and it's just not available. And it's not available because nobody along that whole chain, that distribution chain, the manufacturer, the distributor, the merchant has any access to qualitative data. And they have no access to qualitative data because all the kind of moving parts are just so fundamentally broken. I mean, across the world, over $19 trillion worth of payments are made between small merchants, their distributors and manufacturers, all made in cash or non-digitally. So let me try a, a sort of a thought experiment. So I'm a manufacturer of plumbing stuff and I've got 2,000 SKUs and I push it and I push it out through five distributors to 10,000 plumbing merchants in the UK and I don't know who buys my product, where it is, what else I should sell, where it wasn't in stock and I lost out to a competitor. I only know this because I was talking to the managing director of that of that business a couple of days ago about you know about about that problem. So I'm thinking that sounds very familiar. Is this is this is this what is this what he was describing to me? I was about to say I hadn't realised we'd sent you our business plan. <laughs> well, and, and and he actually said the problem I've got is that my data is all crap. Yeah. Because I I've, I've got none of that data, and when I ask the people I sell to to give me their data. That, well, they're not that keen, and also their data isn't very good. And so I'm sort of, you know, the data is four, four times removed by the time I get it, and it's sort of aggregated in a way that makes it not helpful for me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, you know, across, I, I, you know, the world outside of the UK, Europe, and the US is quite a big one. There's, there's over 5 billion people, middle-class consumers, living across places like Africa, Latin America, Asia, right? And in that world, traditional trade is the dominating way that people buy products. You know, a lot of people, they're very digitally savvy. They, they, they love to shop online, but they like to buy offline. They like to buy from their local store. There's a big kind of, you know, it's very different from the world that we operate in. There's a kind of big kind of family hierarchy exists. You go, whether it's Pakistan, India, you know, Indonesia, Nigeria, Kenya, you know, the kind of infrastructure is very similar in terms of the social infrastructure that exists inside these countries. And so everyone kind of buys off traders and street hawkers and local stores and, you know, kind of people they know and love. And, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff gets done online. A lot of business gets done mobile to mobile and, and in a kind of offline environment. And both, low, you know, kind of big local brands or any kind of local brands and, and of course, the big consumer brands, that's, that's, their, that's their future customer base. You know, they, they, that, that needle has really moved in terms of consumers now, today it's about one and a half billion middle class consumers. By 2025, that number's going up to five billion. So their their revenue, in fact, I'd say for some brands, is their livelihood is coming from that market. And the question is, how do you get your product in front of those consumers? And you don't have too many options available to you, really. And e-commerce is fine if you want to pony up with Amazon, and but it's not so fine if you're a bit worried about whether they're going to manufacture your brand or not, and what they're going to do with your data, of course. Or alternatively, you can pony up with some of the other e-commerce sites. But, you know, e-commerce, and particularly going back to the kinds of people that kind of buy, 80% of the people like to buy in person. So it kind of only solves a bit of the problem. So for them, it's fundamental to get those, to be able to capture those consumers. And they do that through lots of little stores and street, street traders and street hawkers and, you know, door-to-door salespeople and all that kind of stuff. And they want to make sure they've got the right product at the right place at the right time. 
Uh, and to do that today is extremely difficult. In fact, it's almost impossible because most of the data they get is either so fragmented, it's out of date, it's completely rubbish. You know, you've got people using things like WhatsApp to do ordering. I mean, Cola in Nigeria, for example, I think they take something like about, you know, two million orders a day or something stupid all on pieces of paper. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's just a crazy world, right? And it, it badly needs an overhaul in terms of digital infrastructure to be able to support that. And so what do you do? How do you take that paper and take it online for them? Well, we, we address three elements of that through Red Cloud. We've, we've spent, we've invested a lot of money to do it. You know, we founded the business six years ago. Um, myself and my partners, you know, we've invested over 30 million to date. Okay. In terms of getting to it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a decent amount of funding we put into the business. First thing, the first thing we had to address was the payment infrastructure. So we built from scratch a payment infrastructure. It covers over 100 different countries, a population of over 6 billion people, and, and allows you know, up to about 300 of million merchants to be able to easily use that payment infrastructure. When I say use that payment infrastructure, you know, the world today to a merchant is in somewhere like Mexico, Indonesia, or whatever. You know, if they want to open up a bank account, if they even want to use their bank account, it's incredibly painful thing to do. I mean, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a, a three-hour wait at a branch somewhere. It's filling out 27 different pieces of paperwork. It's waiting six weeks to be able to get, you know, your kind of bank account set up. It's just horrible. That sounds like my experience last week in Salisbury. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's interesting. It's probably not that similar to the UK, right? <laughs> but you, but you allow them to just go right. I want to start what link my credit card, create an account. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of these guys, they don't even need a card. They don't even have a credit card. They have a, uh, they open up a trading account instantly on, on our app, so they can download an app. They can open up a trading account, and they can actually start to trade instantly with their with brands. They can buy and sell products, but also they can start to move money electronically using using that trading account. And that trading account is backed by multiple banks across different countries. But we do all the heavy lifting, right? So that's all the merchancies. It's this really sexy, cool little app. That all they have to do is kind of press a couple of buttons and, you know, they've got a payment checkout online. They could kind of buy their goods online, pay for it online. It's really neat. And also what's important, they start to build up a really useful credit profile through that as well. So they can get access to financing and things like that. Okay. What sort of micro, the micro loans or? Yeah, like inventory, more like inventory financing. So they're able to, you know, funding where they can can actually come buy their products, you know, today, get a discount today for buying those products, but not have to pay for those products for another 60, 90 days. When they've hopefully then sold them through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, credit's a big problem in, in the world supply chain. You know, it's a four, there's $4.2 trillion credit gap globally at the moment. I mean, you know, all these things we kind of don't worry about in the, in the so-called developed world until we do worry about it. And, and worrying about it is things like you're seeing at the moment. You know the supply chain problems you're seeing in the UK at the moment? I mean, part of that is Brexit. Part of that is a couple of other things. But, you know, fundamentally, in the local markets, in, you know, we export, I'm sorry, we import so much product from, from Africa, for example. I don't think we appreciate. I mean, when I was last in London, I was talking to this taxi driver guy, we, we were laughing about bananas. And he was saying, you know what, Governor, he said, you know, of course, people are going to wake up and realise that, you know, we don't grow bananas in Norfolk, do we? And he's right, you know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of someone's to analyze this shit. You know, we get bananas from Costa Rica 
And it's not a question of, well, did the boat arrive from Costa Rica to the UK? Okay. It's how in the hell did the bloody bananas get from the producer to the boat in Costa Rica in the first place? And if you don't fix that supply chain problem, you've got you've got a big problem coming your way sooner rather than later. And of course, that's what's happening around the world at the moment. It was always pretty fragile, but it's, it's become, you know, un, under any strain, i.e. COVID, it just falls apart. Well, that, that's right. You know, there's some of the biggest ports in the world have been closed for weeks at a time as a result of COVID outbreaks. And the cost of spot shipping a container from LA to Singapore's doubled in price. Yeah, exactly. We ordered a, a stove in January. It was due to be delivered in July. It's now coming next January. Wow. You know, the, the length of delivery time for these manufacturers, is some, for some people, it's just doubled. I, I, I had to upgrade my Ironman gear, not the movie, the triathlon version. And I ordered, I think I ordered that, yeah. I think I'm now currently in month five of waiting for a pair of shoes to arrive. <laughs> it's mad. It's mad. But the other thing is when you speak to them, they don't actually know when they'll be able to deliver it. I mean, January is yeah. just a guess because they've yeah. got component shortages. Yes, Exactly. The bottom line is, I think there comes a stage when if you can continue to consume more than you create, you have a problem. And we've been doing that for a very long time in the West. And we've, you know, to say that we've kind of <laughs> plundered the rest of the world for the products we need, I don't think would be an over. And I don't want to kind of sound like I'm some kind of social entrepreneur here. It's it's a basic. It's just basic economics, right? You carry on kind of not taking care of the infrastructure in places like Africa or Latin America, where you are sourcing a massive amount of your product from. At some point, the music stops, and the music stops. And these supply chains, you know, where you've got a manufacturer and a distributor or a reseller, or you know, by the time that product gets out of Latin America into the UK, you know, they're just completely bust, and, and they've not been in good shape for a long time. But the slightest kind of strain on that is just make them fall apart and so 30 million in where's the challenge now <laughs> we're on 100 million raise at the moment okay brilliant and with that what's that what's that to fix what's your revenue run rate or is it is, is it is it sales is it people is it development where's yeah it's uh, so sales mainly products done built um, it's a never-ending as you know from your own experience that's a never-ending story in terms of product development but core products built was built way way back we did a pilot in argentina it's been extremely successful for us we had over uh, i think we had something like about a quarter of a million downloads by merchants there already and uh we got about you know 40 50 000 have traded using our platform they've sold they've sold to about two million consumers already what type of things are those merchants selling Interestingly, um, initially, they've been selling a lot of digital products. So we harnessed a whole bunch of digital supply for, so to give you an example, you know, in a lot of these markets, consumers want access to things like Netflix, Spotify, and so on and so forth, but they can't subscribe to them, often because they don't have a credit card. If they have a credit card, they're worried about doing it online. So they buy what's the equivalent of like a gift card, you know, in, in store. <laughs> but that, that process buying in gift cards in stores is expensive and it's not very digital so we digitized all that and we said okay that's a really stupid way of doing it why don't you just digitize it uh, which is what we've done so we've seen a lot of success with that in argentina already we've also got a lot of um, distributors signed up onto our marketplace out there that will be distributing everything from kind of 
Pepsi Cola through to through to food, through to even pharmaceuticals. We've got you know kind of any kind of high volume, low margin, fast moving consumer product you can think of. That's what merchants want to be able to sell much more efficiently to their to their customers. Is it the brand owner coming on your platform, or is it the distributor in country distributor who's we get both okay so we get both. we get the brands and the distributors using it uh which is interesting for us the distributors want to want to distribute they don't want to sell they don't want to market and they don't have to worry about things like inventory supply and funding and their merchants and enabling their merchants to sell better you know that's not a business they're in i mean a distributor is a distributor he just wants to shift products rapidly and efficiently into the into the into the customers he's already got and so they want as many tools as they can get their hands on, technology tools to help them do that much better than they're able to do at the moment. So that's what they use our marketplace. They get much better sales insights and they get much faster understanding of what you know the kind of behavior of their merchants are. But more importantly, they've got a much more efficient way of trading with their merchants through our through our platform. And they don't have the cost, you know, they don't have to go and kind of build a whole back office system themselves. They don't have to kind of invest money on IT. Yeah, they plug and play into our platform, and they could, they're ready to go. And you just take you just take a clip on every transaction. Yeah, four points on every cell that goes through. So we're solving, you know, we're solving a pretty massive problem, we believe, which has become a very big problem uh, and is increasing. Uh, but it's also a very big opportunity, and it's a huge opportunity for these small businesses. You know, I mean, literally, there are 500 million fixed stores globally worldwide. They're pretty much what I've described, either unbanked, off the grid, non-digitized. And they're, they're responsible for literally trillions of dollars worth of consumer sales going through those stores. <laughs> and, you, and you know they're the least likely places for an Amazon to open up anytime soon. In our lifetimes, anyway. Maybe it's some other lifetime, but... Well, you know what's interesting, you know, Bezos is in India at the moment, big time. I don't mean literally, but he's, Amazon was launched in India. And they're, they're really buying up those small little Christmas stores all over the place. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're in a total kind of, you know, death death fight with, with Walmart out there at the moment. And they are really focused on the, on, the, on the physical store. Because that's the business model you have to adopt in India. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 across, I would say, almost the entire continent of Africa, entire continent of Asia. Same in, I mean, you look, you look in China. I mean, look at what Alibaba have done out there with the with the small store. I mean, it's just enormous. And what they've done is they've created these stores not into just coming being a kind of bit of convenience stores. These guys are online sellers as well. So they they've turned these you know kind of small stores into being real. Kind of real revenue generators and, and massive consumer reach. I mean, your typical store, for example, in Argentina, you know, 400 consumers will walk through that store every day and buy products. You compare that to an Amazon seller on the Amazon marketplace, it just dwarfs it. Because they don't just visit the store, they buy. <laughs> Have you got some of that, you know, your original BI product was about customers who bought this might also look, you know, is that... Is that embedded in this platform as well? Is that very common? I bet the IP is. Well, I'm, just, I'm not actually thinking about the IP. I was just thinking about that. I mean, there's there's a there's a thread there, isn't there? You know, here you are with a physical store in in Argentina, and you're selling these five things. You know, maybe you should be selling a sixth thing, and it's on the platform. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's interesting because my my story behind that, and I, I won't bore you with the detail, but. But essentially, I've, I've been 
I'd launched a VC fund in Cambridge with with my uh, with my partner, a guy called Martin Frost. And we got involved in some various tech companies. And one of the tech companies, we wanted the tech company to do very well with a company called Cambridge Medical Robotics. That's, that's raised, I think it's raised almost a billion dollars worth of VC now. And, and literally, we founded that business along with the other three uh, kind of brilliant technologists, literally in a church in Cambridge. It's gone on to do some great things. And we... Um, and we were involved with this company called Iceni Mobile. And Iceni was the original tech team behind Mpesa in Kenya and Africa. And what they built was this amazing payment infrastructure in, in Africa where you didn't need a bank account. You could just use your mobile and you could move money to wherever you need to do around the country. And I was really intrigued by this because I was thinking, wow, you know, I knew the problems across supply chains. I thought if I can plug that into, into global supply chains and sort this whole merchant problem out, I saw a big kind of big friction point for a lot of people, which is how to get the money moved efficiently. But then what surprised me was when, when I kind of revisited my old vector model was actually things haven't really changed. You, you know, it was like, it was like this whole world had been kind of always frozen in time. It could just continue to do exactly the same thing as it was 15 years ago. That's why I was interested in your story about the plumbing guy. <laughs> It's really interesting because they said, look, we, uh, if we launch a new product, it could take five years for it to reach maturity in the market because, he said, so we launch a new product. We don't know who buys our product. We've got no idea. So it's not like they're on a database of ours. So we can't go and say, you trust us. Here's another thing you can trust. So when Fred goes in to buy his pipes because he's doing a kitchen or a bathroom, the man, the man in the in the distributor or the man in the uh, plumbing shop has to say, "Hey, Fred, you know you're buying you're buying this joint. Um, these guys have done a new joint. Maybe you should try it." And some of those people will go, "No, don't want to. Not interested. This one works just fine." Some of them will say, "Oh, that's interesting. Let me have a look." They'll try it, and maybe they're hooked. But that process it has to be, you know, eighty-eight. He said there's eighty-eight thousand uh, sole trading plumbers in the UK. And for a product to take off, they've got to reach all 88,000 of them and persuade them that they should try this new product instead of the old product, which is actually working okay, because otherwise they'd all would be unable to do bathrooms and kitchens. So he said that's so you know, you say that's their that's their logistical challenge, which is not unlike the challenge that you've just described in, in Argentina, but it's it's here in the UK. So it's um it's just you know, so I love I mean, look, that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. I love talking to people about their sort of intractable problem and then looking for parallels in other businesses or in other industries where actually that problem has been solved or in other countries where it might already have been solved yeah that's interesting i hadn't, I hadn't realized that was still such a problem actually in the uk yeah it's just you know interesting the way that works and it, and uh but what um you know look you've been doing this scaling tech firms for a while what are some of the things that you've got good at that other people, you know, things that things that you know now because of experience that other people could learn from or shortcut shortcuts maybe that people could take. I think the three big ones, it's you know, how to get the hiring right, how to get the product market fit right, and thirdly, how the hell to raise money. <laughs> those are the those are the three things I think you've got to get. And they they've kind of got to they kind of got to work almost in parallel constantly with each other, you know. What's your secret sauce around hiring then? 
I think, you know, I'll tell you, well, let me tell you all the mistakes I've made. So all the mistakes I've made is, you know, bringing the kind of big swinging hot shot gun from, you know, Microsoft into a startup, paying them a ridiculous sum of money, thinking they're going to be able to kind of solve, you know, my business problems for me. And of course they can't. And why does why doesn't that work? <laughs> many, many, many reasons. <laughs> I think the biggest reason, of course, is that you know these these people and what they don't realise is the strength of the brand that goes before them. And of course, and it just it just paves the way for them, right? So it makes their lives easier. They've got an, an organisation and infrastructure around them that is hyper efficient. So there's a big difference between kind of you know. Uh, I, how can I put it? Kind of, you know, being in the being in the boat in the middle of the ocean in very calm seas, just vaguely pointing in the right direction, making sure it goes the right way, with you know, with a strong wind behind you. Yeah, that's right. With a very strong wind behind you, versus being in the middle of a bloody false ten with a kind of, you know, what what is probably politely being called a frigging dinghy, you know, and, and with oars in your hands, yeah. having to create your own yeah, propulsion. Yeah. I, I think I think that. Look, I've been there. I've hired people, you know. But even um, I think there's two things in there. There's contextual success, right? So you didn't build the process. You were just good at operating the process. And in a startup, you've got to know people. People have got to work by first principles to be able to build a process and then innovate. Well, I suppose that fits in with the product market fit thing. But so often enough, I've hired people who were successful in an organization that was, you know, much further up the curve than we were. And actually, you do need those. You do need those people who, who, who can operate by first principles and are somehow mad enough to want to row a dinghy in a force ten gale. I think it was Reid Hoffman, wasn't it, who said, you know, the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who jumps off the edge of a cliff and builds the plane on the way down. (laughs) 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 Um, It's pretty much like that, yeah, I'd agree. I think think he summed that up perfectly. You're right. You need people who can build planes on the way down. Yes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) It's not even on the way up most of the time. (laughs) Not only that, but they've probably crashed a couple of times and yet they still jump off the cliff. With the optimism that this time they'll pull it off again. Yeah, that's right. It's like it's like, it's like the coyote, isn't it? Our road running, you know. So how it falls back up to the top of the mountain. <laughs> and so, what else? What when you've got it right? What um, are the things you look for in the types of people you pull together in your in your teams? Yeah, absolutely. I look. You know, most important thing I look for is. Uh, is that they put the business's ambition before their own. So they have the right ambition. So they have the ambition of a much bigger picture that they're trying to create, um, and they want to be a part of that. And that comes very much second after their own ambition. That's, all, that's, that's the hardest thing, I think, to pull out of people. It's the, getting them united and unified kind of common vision is, is actually very challenging to do. It's different, you know, kind of when you work for Microsoft, that's been preset. You're part of a big brand. You know, you wear your badge with honor, you walk around, you know, and, and frankly, you're you're probably in the business thinking, well, I want that guy's job ahead of me. And, you know, that's how I see my career in this business. When you're in startup, as you know, it's absolutely all hands to the same deck. And it's all about, you know, we're going to build this thing together and we're going to make this thing kind of fly together. And you want somebody who's got, got that kind of ambition, I think, number one. And number two, I think attitude over the aptitude is much more important. 
you know, it's, it's, the, it's the ability to accept the fact you're probably going to be doing 16, 18 hour days and not really getting paid that well for doing it and taking one hell of a risk and maybe not getting the rewards for it in the initial period. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough ask. I think people going to any kind of startup, whether it's the founder or it's, or it's first hires, it, it's a real tough gig. I, I'm still, I, and I, I hired a guy called um, uh, Jason when we were at Pier 1. I met, him in a, I met him in a hotel. We didn't have an office. I told him we were going to build a fifty million pound competitor to Rackspace, and he went, "Okay, brilliant, I'm in." <laughs> and, and I still That's tell him that I, at the time, I'm like thinking, "Shit, he's got a family, and he's <laughs> currently got a job, but he's just given it all up, and he's only just met me. This thing could just be complete bollocks." <laughs> and, and so, you know, but some people, I just look, you know, have that personal risk profile, and 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 they jump straight in, and then later on, you hire people who are, you know. Whose job? Whose job will I get later? It's a different. Yeah, you know, yeah. you reach a different level of maturity, and you're hiring different people. Yeah, the I'm in people I love. I'm like, oh, you're right. I, you know, I, yeah. I remember when I remember when we when we acquired um, Red Cloud. Effectively, I remember day one. I my very first hire was a woman called Samaya Hamzari. Fantastic. She's actually, you know, she's the chief operating officer in the company today, and. Uh, I said, I remember I pitched her this kind of big vision of where we're going and so on and so forth. I said, right, now let me come in. We've bought this software off the off the ICINI team. I'm going to come and introduce you to the to the people and they're going to give you a full demo of the product. So, okay, she said, she's all very excited. So we turned up to the Cambridge office, walked into this office. There's a guy sat there behind the kind of desk like this with his arms folded and there's a whole pile of kind of A4 paper and there's a stack of CDs here. And he said, uh, are you the guys who just bought, you know, the tech for Iceni? I said, yeah, that's me. He said, oh, right, here you are then, mate. He said, here's the uh, CDs, and here's the kind of manual. He said, I've written it all out for you, right? There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing kind of, you know, there's kind of no manual book or so, but I've written everything out for you, so you should be able to follow the instructions. I said, well, hold on a second. You know, where's, where's the demo? Where's the, where's the stack? Where's, the, where's this? <laughs> That's it, mate. I, you know, I'm done. You know, thanks. Walks off, and there's this, you know, there's this tiny desk with one chair, CDs, and pieces of paper. And I said to Smile, "What do you think?" And I remember just looking at her face, which was just her eyes were wide in horror. You know, going, "Oh my god, <laughs> what?" <laughs> not, not quite what you sold me. Yeah, you told me this is the Empire, you know, a platform, the structure. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. you get, you get, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You get a lot of that. And it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, and the people, the people who kind of ride that journey with you uh, are critical. And the, I think the hardest thing is being able to, when you take on the kind of big money, you know, the big investment rounds, is making sure that those people are able to kind of rise along with that through, through the, you know, through as the company starts to scale. That's where it gets tough. Because then you do need a different person, actually. Well, you do. Because the thing is that, uh, again, I mean, one of the rules we had was that if you felt like you had more than six hats on, you know, if you were filling more than six seats in the org chart, please put your hand up and let us know, because obviously we need to hire somebody. <laughs> but, you know, all of those people are generalists, aren't they? They're playing, they're sort of playing out of position. And at some point in the future, you end up needing somebody who's really, really good at one of those roles and and often it's not it's not that person who's been on the journey uh you know we had uh we've had clients that we started with and it's like the, the ceo says well i'm going to bring my leadership team i say okay how many people are coming down 13 
<laughs> you've only got 27 people in the company. Why is your leadership 13 people? It's like, well, you know, the first four people are sort of still on the leadership team, even though they're no longer actually leaders in the business. You know, they're, they're really sole contributors. But I've never had the difficult conversation about them not being on the leadership team. Okay, right. Well, we'll sort that out with you then. That's that's really an emotional wretch, isn't it? You know, what do we do? How do we? It's for them, for them, and and for the entrepreneur. You know, these people are your success. You know, but now, but now the business has sort of outgrown their their talent in a particular area. Yeah, and I personally, you know, I I don't think you can ever replace DNA, and I think that's a mistake a lot of companies make. And the ones that do do that, I think actually have big problems. I, I mean, there's obvious examples like the Apple one, right? T -t Typical example of that. But you look at, you know, you look at some of the great enterprise software companies around at the moment where there's, you know, I mean, Larry Ellison's still the chairman of Oracle for Christ's sakes. You know, I mean, how much operational day-to-day -day business does he do? Nothing. But his DNA is so fully impregnated into that business. Same as Salesforce.com, Mark Benioff. You look at all the kind of great tech companies and what they'd be able to do. And it, I think it's rare to be able to do what Apple have done, actually, where they had a kind of great founder, they got rid of it, and the great founder came back and rescued the business. And then, to be fair, they put in a great manager who's actually done a great job in terms of building, taking Apple to the next level. Then, you know, Amazon without bezels, what would it look like? You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I think, I think what people get confused is that income, equity, and control are three separate things. Yeah. And and somehow people have them, they can't, they haven't separated in their minds. I, I remember uh, somebody we did some, uh, we had some conversations with, the CEO was one of the founders, but so was one of the salespeople. And they'd early on worked out that although this guy was a founder and, you know, had been sales manager, he wasn't the sales director. So he dropped back down and was, although he was a big shareholder of the business, he was no longer in control of the business and he had a job to do and he was, you know, he, he had the um, maturity to fit into the org chart where he could make a contribution. Um, and so I think if you can get that right, it's really powerful that, you know, that, uh, you know, like Wozniak was around for a long time, but, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't running the business. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think I think people also get far too much hung up over titles. You know, I carry the title of CEO, right? But, you know, for me, I'm a founder, first and foremost, always. So this is this is my baby. You know, I love it. I you know do I'll take a bullet for it. I do whatever it takes to get to where it needs to get to. You know, the kind of CEO kind of relationship I have with it is very kind of abstract. You know, I, the main purpose of that role for me is to be able to hire an absolute world class team around me that are able to execute and and take what I hope is you know a potentially fantastic business to having the impact it can have, you know, across the world. And I think, you know, I think that that becomes really important is being able to really understand what your drivers are and also know when you are, when you're kind of out of time. Have you stepped back as the CEO in some of the businesses that you founded? Yeah, totally. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, I think you've got to know when your time is up and, and be able to accept that. And not get hung up on it. You're in the way then. Yeah, and I think you've got to accept that. And I think you've got to be able to and it takes I don't think it's a brave decision to do either. If you're if you're a major equity holder in the business, then yeah, absolutely. Does it matter? I think where it's harder is for the people around you, the people where titles are important, where it does become, you know, they don't have founder equity and they do, you know, they need 
they feel they need that kind of fulfillment through their business title to give them the kind of recognition rewards that they, that they want. And kind of balancing out all those kinds of different emotions in a business is very difficult, as, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> yeah, look, I, people, it, they're the best, uh, the, the, the great days with people and the worst days are with people. It's always, it, the highs and lows are always around people. Yes. Always around people. Justin, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> the one, the one, the one thing I really wish I'd known now that we, that, that I wish I'd known earlier is just how much it costs in every sense of the word to get a great product to market. So wherever you start off from, it's definitely going to cost financially 10 times as much, emotionally 10 times as much, materially 10 times as much. And it doesn't matter what forecast, what plan, wherever you come up from and how much experience you have. Incredibly, it always takes 10 times more, much more expensive, 10 times longer. <laughs> uh, well, and, and how long did it take you to learn that? Uh, I'm still learning it. <laughs> I, I keep i keep thinking by now nothing should surprise me but it always does <laughs> so, sorry what, what do you mean you forgot to mention that blah, 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 blah. what books have you found useful along the way you know you you said the three sort of main challenges were hiring the right people product market fit and raising money are there i mean the books that you recommend don't necessarily have to Cover those three. I just thought I'd remind you of what they were, and maybe that jogs your memory. No, I tell you, really good books. I really encourage people to read. I think I think Benioff's book on how to scale a software company is really interesting. Um, so it's all about Salesforce.com and how we built Salesforce.com. And Benioff for me is, I think, it's probably one of the most under uh, under recognized entrepreneurs. I, I mean, what what he's done. You know, I mean, let's be frank. He took a company which is basically Outlook on steroids and has built the fourth most successful enterprise software company in history. It's extraordinary, you know. And uh, and he did that under immense competition. I mean, uh, I think he's he's an incredible guy. And built a business with a great culture. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Fantastic culture. And I think what he did around the foundation, the kind of basic pillars he put in place, his thought leadership is so way ahead of other people. So I think he's an extraordinary guy, really, really well worth. I think the other book I would really recommend people read is The Everything Store, which is all about, so if you want to build an e-commerce company, by the way, read The Everything Store. It's all about how to build, you know, kind of e-commerce business, all about Amazon, which is very interesting. And then, and then the final book that I got a lot from actually was the, it's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it's by, written by a guy called Harowitz. I, I, I'll put my thoughts to one side about how I feel about Anderson Harowitz as a company and so on and so forth. But I think he, I think he nailed it in that book. Absolutely. I mean, pretty much, you know, if you wanted to kind of have a reference book to all the bloody things that are going to go wrong, <laughs> then, uh, and how to kind of basically try and put them right before they go wrong, that, that's, that's a real go-to book. And also there's, um, there is some, luck and humility that comes through there yes there is right you know because there are there are definitely times you where really, right? are, yeah 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 i have yeah well and also i heard it yes i have yes the uh is it good i haven't read it yet yeah no i've i've uh it was my book of the month for our client ceos last month 
Oh, really? I thought I thought it was really good because his follow-up book is really a handbook around culture. So I thought that was uh, uh, that was really good. But I thought that his first book, where and then he uh, Vern Harnish had him at a conference and um, he swore in the first sentence. <laughs> Vern, Vern, Vern was taken aback, and, and Ben said, oh, "I've got CEO Tourette's." I, <laughs> I just thought I just thought that was really good. Guiltley gives himself uh, permission to swear from then on. But uh, but I just you know like that um, you know that is that um, God I can't remember the name of his business um, Loud was it Loud Cloud Loud Cloud yeah yeah and and just you know like there were there were so many times where it, like it nearly went to the wall yeah and and then you know that sort of the last minute salvaged it and then kept going and you know sold an asset and you know and it's that I think. Um, you know that's the that whole you know rowing a dinghy in a force ten gale in the middle of the Atlantic versus being at Microsoft. You know it's 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 a very different group of people who oh, yeah. can pull that off. And um, the, the terror of not making the payroll is is like uh, you know it's a big one. I mean I guess you must be you know the, the the one I actually there's a book I read with a lot of interest which I thought, thought was horribly biased, but the one about Theranos, uh, Blood Simple, I think it's called. Or something okay, like no, that. not read that. That's good. So this is all about Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, yeah, who's currently currently live live in court. Yeah, actually, it was interesting reading some of the court transcripts and things like that. And you're you're sort of looking at it and thinking, my God, you know. Yeah, founders in particular, I think, are put under so much pressure to deliver on their numbers and so on and so forth. You know, the fine line between doing something really stupid and actually, you know, kind of saying, well, actually, my product does this or, you know, I believe we're going to do revenue of that or, yeah, you know, we've got our letter of intent, but actually it's a contract for X. You know, it's a, there's, a real, there's a real salutary lesson in a lot of what, what she's done. Uh, which I think has been is often overlooked by a lot of people, actually. And the lesson isn't about whether she did or she didn't, whether she is or she isn't a crook. I mean, the courts will decide that. But for me, it's much more about the story around that is just what kind of pressure was she as an entrepreneur put under? To you know, I don't believe for one second this woman was born bad and is an evil character or anything like that. So for her to kind of gone down the route that she's gone down, which is clearly a very unhealthy one. Yeah, there's you know, fake it until you make it's okay, isn't it? You know, as long as you're not telling people one thing and doing another, you know, like we're doing this on the journey to this, you know, I think is I think is okay. And if you if you want to if you want to read the ultimate fake it before you make it story, you know, there's an amazing book called The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, you know the next line. (laughs) And and in there, there is loads of stories about the old kind of 1980s Silicon Valley and about how Ellison was trying to build Oracle and what the kind of stunts those guys were doing. Uh, it's just incredible, you know. And that's that's the challenge I have. When I look at that world and then you look at the Theranos world and you look at what Zuckerberg did with Facebook and so on and so forth, you know, the lines are very blurred, I think, across a lot of that at the moment, the whole kind of whole morality lines. And it's very interesting for me to see how certain individuals are kind of targeted like Theranos, you know, and, and Elizabeth Holmes and yet others have kind of frankly got away scot-free. We're doing almost exactly the same thing, you know. Uh, Blood Simple, I think it's called or something like that. Yeah, it's by, it was written by the New York reporter who exposed her. Okay, fab, I'll find that. We'll put the title, we'll put the, we'll work out what the titles are of those, put them all in the, in the it's show. It's a real call to retail. Fab. Well, that's brilliant. You know, I, I, 
often say to guests, the whole podcast thing, the 45 minutes preamble is only to get some book recommendations. So <laughs> some good books that I haven't read. So that's fantastic. There's a couple there that I haven't read. You're the Bezos algorithm in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that that's been absolutely brilliant talking to you today. Thank you, Dave, for coming on. Thank you very much, Dave. Good to talk to you, Dominic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.